Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach. One of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Culture is everywhere, and every leader that I have ever talked to aspires to either change it or create a culture. And yet, as every consultant I've ever talked to, and probably every employee knows, culture is extraordinarily elusive. Some days, I think you could change everybody in the entire building and still not change the culture at all. So a lot of people have tried changing the culture, and a lot of people have failed. And it's hard to even define it or yet alone understand it. So we're going to start today with five myths about culture, such as, I may shock you with this one, culture starts at the top, or even one company, one culture. And then we're going to focus on, so what do you do practically, really, to impact the culture? Or I rather should say the habits and the routines of your organization. I am super excited about my guest today, David G. White. He's partner and co-founder of Antos Global. David, I hope I pronounced that correctly. You can correct me later. But he's a cognitive anthropologist who focuses on the new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emerging science of the cultural mind. And what I like about this is that anthropologists have for decades gone in to study cultures. And so finally, we're taking some of that practice and discipline from anthropology and dragging it into organizational life. Antos Global helps organizations manage and sustain transformation, working with companies like ITT, Fidelity Investments, Pratt & Whitney, and CVS, just to mention a few. I should say that David has also held positions at Microsoft, Mercer HR Consulting, and Lotus Development, which is now part of IBM. And if that's not enough, he's a professional jazz guitarist and composer. And his new book, Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. That's a lot to say in a title. Disrupting corporate culture, though, that's a good one to remember. David, welcome to the show. Good morning and good afternoon, Wanda. Thank you for having me. And what a mouthful. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but disrupting corporate, I can't even say it this morning. <laughs> disrupting corporate culture will you know, do it for you. I always like to ask at the very beginning, what started you on this journey? What question have you really been chasing? Uh, great question. Um, it, it goes back, uh, there's really two starts. One, I have to go back to my undergraduate days in college. And as a, uh, this is, this is going to date me, but back in the uh, early 1980s <laughs> and uh, studying, uh, getting my first taste, my first whiff of cognitive science by studying, um, I was a philosophy minor and reading a book that I highly recommend to all your listeners to read. It's a philosophy linguistics book called Metaphors We Live By, by the esteemed cognitive linguist uh, here at Berkeley, uh, George Lakoff, and his uh, and another uh, person at University of Oregon, philosopher Mark Johnson. Brilliant book. It changed my life. Uh, that book, Metaphors We Live By, because it, it sort of clued me in or made me hip to the idea that... Um, we think as humans in analogies and we think in metaphor 
Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the prime distinguishing characteristics of humans over other primates is our abilities to think in analogies, to make sense of one thing in terms of another. So that got me really interested in, it sort of rocked my world. Uh, it's also an incredibly accessible, a very readable book. And I was also an English major, so I was, I was struck by, you know, drawn in by the idea of metaphor. That was the first thing. The second thing was just having then, a, you know, fast forward a few years later, working in big corporations like uh, Lotus Development, the inventor of the spreadsheet, uh, and going through my first quote unquote culture change project as a, as a, as a, as a young greenback uh, OD person uh, and really seeing it fail miserably and then being a part of, you know, as you alluded to in your introduction, uh, many uh, failed change, corporate transformation, culture change initiatives over three decades of work, basically never seeing any of them succeed despite great intentions, great minds, great people, great leaders, great visionaries, very talented, you know, uh, strategy. I mean, talented people, great strategies. Never seen one work. So uh, the combination of those two things um, at the tender age of 48 led me back to graduate school to try to answer that question. What is wrong with culture? Ah, the way we think okay. about it in, in uh, modern right. corporations. Right. right. Okay. So, yeah, that was it. <laughs> so a book, George Lakoff's book, actually a very famous one that a lot of people, including me, have read, Metaphors We Live By. Yeah, um, A failed experience, as we often have in life, when what you thought was going to happen doesn't quite happen the way it should have. And then back to graduate school with what is it we get so badly wrong with culture? Fabulous. So tell me, I guess we have to I have to ask you, how do you define culture? I mean, I think everybody and his brother has tried this, but for you, do you have a definition? What does it mean? I do, and it's a definition that, uh, as a cognitive anthropologist, that we have um, settled on over over the last 20, 30 years. Cognitive anthropology is um, a new field. It's a subfield of anthropology, of cultural anthropology. It's kind of the, the merge of all the other cognitive subdisciplines of linguistics, sociology, psychology, uh, and this incredible new field, cultural neuroscience, which is basically the study of the brain in groups or the study mm-hmm. of the brain in social settings, social contexts. And what happens to our brains in, in, in social systems. And, and uh, you know, we, we know a lot about neuroplasticity. We know a lot about the, how experiences indelibly shape synaptic connections, chemical connections in the brain. Um, and that's, that's well established. Uh, what, we, what we're still learning is how sustained those experiences are over time. You know, learning does not stop at, you know, 30 years ago. It was the thought learning was the idea that learning stopped at adolescence, you know, and Bob Keegan and others really changed that paradigm for us. And we know now learning it can, continues to look through the lifespan and, you know, adult development is happening all the way through to the moment of death, essentially. Um, so all that to say, the way we in cognitive anthropology think about cultures, we define culture as knowledge. Culture basically is what we call a reference system. And the best way to describe that is to think about us, your mental operating system, just like your iOS or Windows or Android operating system, running in the background of our daily lives. And it's, it's the tacit knowledge that we draw upon to function and make sense in a particular context, in a particular group. So that's also to say, you know, Wanda, you and I have many, many, many reference systems that we draw from, depending on your background and you know, childhood and cultural orientation and, and mine. And, uh, uh, but the ones that we would share 
in a group or in a corporation or an organization would be the foundations of shared culture. Okay. So it's, it's background knowledge. The example I always use is kind of hackneyed, but I use it a lot. It's in the book as well. It's, you know, how do you know when you're, when you're, when you're in a crowded elevator that you don't look people in the eye? How do you know that? Nobody ever told me. You know, maybe your mother or father might have told you that, but I was never told that. You know, how do you know when you get into a subway car in a, in a city, when we can ride subways again, uh, that you don't block the door? Right. You don't stand and block other. How do you know this? And there's millions of small examples like that. And we know these things because these are part of our shared cultural reference systems, mm -hmm. background operating system. We don't know that we know it. We draw upon it in context or when we're made aware of it. So culture and organizations works the same way. It's a background reference system that we use to make sense. And that's an incredibly, for me anyway, a very powerful, very simple, but very powerful idea. And it also explains why culture is so elusive for many leaders. Because it's, you know, it's, you know, I think of it as a mental OS, right? And how often are we, we're only aware of our operating systems and our computers when they don't work. Coming from Microsoft, I can say that with some assurance as well, right? So, <laughs> Especially if you're going to talk about the OS system as opposed to the Windows system. I Thank saw that, that slide in there. Okay, it does make sense, though, if you think about it as the reference system of how we know how to get things done, what to do, what not to do, and so on. Nobody ever taught us, so it wouldn't necessarily be in our cognitive conscious brain to list out here the 50,000 things we do. They just run in the background. So right. that makes sense exactly. to me. Okay, I can't wait to dive into your five myths. So I... For the first one I want to talk about just because it grabbed my attention. And every human being I've ever worked with, every leader within the organization, every HR representative, every change agent consultant is going to say, quote, culture starts from the top, mm -hmm. end quote. And you say that's a myth. Okay, why? Mm -hmm. that, was the, that was the one that I had uh, the most fun uh, working on and and it's deeply deeply pervasive in our in our society to think that way. Um, so let me just begin by saying leaders leaders do have something to do with culture. So as so for your listeners, leaders and organizational practitioners, you know leaders are not off the hook. Let's just start there. So yeah. so put everybody's minds at rest. Right, <laughs> leaders have a lot. The leader that comes to me and says I have well, I have nothing to do with the culture, I'm going to slap him him or her. So. Um, they have a lot to do with culture, but it's not linear, it's not input-output, and it's not directly causal. And there's, very, there's virtually no research in anthropology that supports the claim that a leader, now I'm going to go back uh, hundreds of thousands of years and think about a tribal leader actually setting the culture of that society. One of the interesting things about our field, Wanda, as you, as you know, is that consultants especially we're very prone to this we make up concepts you know we invent the concept of culture as if we were, we were the inventors of the idea like culture has been around in for in human societies for as long as there have been humans because humans create culture it's an evolutionary adaptive response to survival in fact without culture the argument goes human societies wouldn't survive right. as reference as knowledge you know how to i'm just going to take it out of context but you know how does a uh, a tribe in Papua New Guinea know which native plants are poisonous and which are not. How would you know that, right? You get taught that in some direct way? Likely not. You learn that as part of your reference system as a child growing up. Human, humans create culture or culture is part of our cognitive substrate, our cognitive preconscious as a way to survive. 
as a way to make sense and survive. So when consultants invent the concept of culture, it's, it gets, uh, it's always humorous. So back to your question, I haven't lost track of the question. The, the, um, so if you think about culture as a reference system, you, the question really is how do leaders impact the reference system, right? And there's been a, a lot of thinking and, and a, lot of, a lot of evolution on this because leaders have something to do with culture, but the idea that it comes from either their personalities or comes from the things that they say or the things that they do, um, what we know is that it takes a lot more than just pronouncements or memos or um, walking the talk, so to speak, by leaders. Uh, it takes a lot more than that to change neuroplasticity of a collective, a lot more. What's required is sustained and meaningful experience. Think about how you come to know anything really meaningful and important in your life. It's usually because it's been sustained. You've been doing it for a long time or a while, and it's, it's important to you. And so we confuse the, the idea of cultures, uh, uh, leaders shaping culture, because often, especially in small companies, it's, it is the leaders or the founders that have the business strategy or the vision or the knowledge that makes the company successful. You know, the founder creates the company, they have the idea, the idea proves to be revolutionary, therefore, and that creates a, a kind of culture around that idea, and therefore you attribute it to the leader. Well, it's, it is attributable to the leader, but the leader didn't create the culture. The leader provided the idea that made the company successful. That was a meaningful experience for the collective working on that. On that. that is what creates the culture. The meaningful, sustained experience is how the reference system gets formed. And there's a lot of data to support that in the in the. I can see group. watching a number of entrepreneurial firms where you start with a green slate. So, you know, you yeah. could have evolved any kind of culture that you wanted to evolve. And even in large organizations. And I can see where if you think about the culture as the kind of experiences we've had with each other, there's the meaning of what we're trying to achieve as a company or as a group. That is a piece of what makes it work or not work. But then people interact with each other and learn ways of interacting with each other all the time. Right. And the leaders can't touch every single one of those. Especially so the company grows and gets more complicated yeah. and right, you know, beyond yeah. a certain, right, exactly. And often a lot of it is not intentional anyway. A few leaders will be quite intentional about some of those choices, but not all of them. And it can't, it can't just be down to the leaders. It has to be down to everybody else. So yeah. sustained, yeah. meaningful experience. So that tells me then why most culture change programs don't work. They're neither sustained nor meaningful. For the meaningful for whom is the key question. Not meaningful for the CEO, not meaningful for you and me as the consultants, meaningful for the majority of the population, right? And that's a, that's a slippery term, meaningful, right? Another, another one of the myths that I talk about is uh, cultures analogous with values. Mm-hmm. Well, values, of course, have something to do with culture, but values are kind of the, the tip of the iceberg. And here, what I'm talking about are the, um, the practice values, not the espoused values. That, that's a whole different thing. The things that right. we write on the, write on the posters is, right. is, is, uh, is, is maybe desired, it's maybe directional, it's espoused, but it's not, it's not real necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but even values that our, you and I would share in an organization, those values only become sort of part of the reference system when when they are meaningful to us, A, and they're aligned or enacted, you know, through routines and habits and processes, um, because, you know, the way we act and behave all day is aligned to them. 
So we have a value around collaboration, for example. Well, if we actually are collaborative and really do think collaboratively and work collaboratively again and again and again and again and again over time, and that proves to be successful because it leads to positive outcomes that you and I find meaningful, that will engender this culture of collaboration. But it's not going to happen simply because we want it or we say it or we even train on it, you know, right. have the collaboration training or, you know, we, it, it's not that, it's not that simple. It's far more complicated. And that's why I talk a lot about practices, which practices. are routines, routines, habits, processes. A lot of it's informal mm-hmm. that it's the way the company runs um, that. And, and it, a lot of it is not in the realm of people. A lot of another mistake that uh, leaders and consultants often make is we, we target HR or HR processes as the, as the locus of intervention for our right. culture change, right? And, and I would say to you, you want to change culture, let's talk about your, you know, the, way you, the way you do budgeting or the way you plan or the way you um, allocate resources or the way you, um, what's your management reporting system, your monitoring system? How do you keep tabs on what's going on in the business, right? That's culture. So your business practices, yeah. Really, core business practices, yeah. Because those signal what matters around here more than any HR practices are going to do other than who gets promoted. That's the other one that's going to signal. Indeed. Yeah, or, or no, I, they, they, don't get me wrong. These, these talent practices matter. Hiring, I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a talent management guy. Um, that's where I grew up in that, in that world, and that's extremely important. Your competency model is very important, only, but only to the extent that it's practiced and lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I now say to my clients, because um, I've done a lot of competency development work over the years, I now say to my client, it's not so much about what's in the competencies as whether those pra- competencies are actually adhered to and practiced and reinforced through all of your talent management. Through everything, through everything that we do. In the through everything. Process. Yeah, if it's just, if it's just stuff on a, on a database or on a piece of paper, it's worthless. It's not you know. worthwhile. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of that. Yeah. I don't know, let's engrave it on the wall. It's even more worthless. Okay. <laughs> Um, not that those are not good aspirations. I still want to come back to this thing about the leaders and what the leader's job is. So you said the leader has a lot to do, but clearly they can't control it. They could probably destroy it by some of their behaviors and some of their choices, but they can't control it because it exists in all of the interactions of all of the people is the reference system. So what is it that the leader needs to be doing then in to build, sustain, nurture a culture yeah leaders play a key role um but it's much more difficult and non-straightforward as as i've said what the number one thing that a leader does uh is um as i say is is um they have the control over resources typically and they have the control over agendas Mm -hmm. and so agendas and resources are the two big levers that leaders get to pull and I say leaders, especially the CEO, but this is true right. of a general manager running a business. Or, right. um, when you control the agenda or set the agenda and, set, and control the resources, you are basically, you have the opportunity to shape practices. And because you can sanction practices, uh, you can decide, you know, this particular habit or routine or process needs to be, we need to change the way this happens over here. We need to set this in place over there. Uh, of course, how you distribute capital, how you distribute people, um, where where you put your energy, right. where you put your attention, um, how you put your attention, right? These are all shapers of practices, which in okay. turn 
shape the neuroplasticity. So I keep going back to let's not talk about culture as a kind of as a dependent variable. Another thing that really uh, is sort of a pet peeve of mine of, of organizations keep thinking of culture as the culture, the thing in the box, as if we yeah. can you know with inputs and outputs, as if we can manipulate it like uh, like, in, like a piece of inventory, like a piece of machinery. Yeah. Yeah, culture is not like that. It's it's not a, a directly dependent variable. So if you let's let's talk about if we want to talk about changing culture, let's talk about changing brain chemistry. Now you can begin to appreciate the complexities <laughs> of, of the CEO. Right. Let's change Wanda's brain chemistry. Okay, how do we do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is if you <clears throat> take your model that it is the reference system, so it's the operating system that we all use in the background, and it's not just as simple as this mental model I have about how we behave is much more complicated and how I've learned over decades to interact and get things done with everybody around who my practices. And if I'm going to change those, I have to change how my brain is wired. So we're in essence, neuroplasticity, right? Yeah, you're at, and and when and I say you facetiously, Wanda, but you know the the, the us, the collective, right? Yeah. The organization, and if we're hundred thousand people, like at Microsoft, that's incredibly difficult. Yeah, it's even difficult with a thousand people or five hundred people. Um, so, so but practices are are the, these habits, routines, processes, formal and informal, are key because those are the things that we enact and sustain typically over time. Okay. So the way we, yeah. the way, not just the way we do things around here, it's these habitual, sustainable, meaningful ways that when we, we, the ways in which we do those, those meaningful, okay. sustainable things. Okay. All right. I love that. Changing the reference system is, requires sustained, meaningful experience. Yeah. All right. So we have talked about two of your myths and I'd like to hit the rest of them because I think they're fascinating. We've talked about this one that culture starts at the top. So yes, the top has a lot to play, but it's much bigger than just what the top does. Mm -hmm. And then I think you said that culture is not analogous to the values, um, but and you say culture is not a physical thing, that it's not a box you can manipulate. It's not an input or an output or a causal sequence. It's the habits and practices, not the objects and the symbols. I like that statement. Let's tackle this one that says one company, one culture. Yeah. I think I know what you're going to say now, but, you know, let's go for it. Well, Why yeah, one, com one company, one culture. Um, cognitive anthropologists like to talk about culture as, uh, as kind of atomic particles mm -hmm. or DNA is another metaphor. Um, or one, one anthropologist talks about, you know, like um, the little uh, tadpoles in a little tide pool. You know, mm -hmm. there are many, if you think about culture as a reference system, then you think about what anchors a reference system or what's the, how do you decompose a reference system? Cultures are made up of these sort of fundamental units. Uh, I call them dominant logics. Other people call them schemas, cultural schemas. Other people call them mental models, shared mental models. But they're these sort of atomic, small bits of, of mental representations, preverbal, that, um, that are, are the DNA or the, the, the compositions of your, of your reference system, sort of the, mm -hmm. these are the sort of pre-conscious patterns uh, that, we, um, that, we, that we bring that, that are the formations of culture. These, again, the easiest way I think about it is dominant logics. You know, it's a, right. uh, the best example is you know, a, dominant, a lot of manufacturing companies, a lot of our industrial clients have dominant logics centered around the idea of certainty which is really minimizing risk, like making certain that no risks will ever be taken because right. the nature of manufacturing, especially industrial manufacturing is the cost of failure very high, right? right. So you don't, you can't, 
you don't ship beta versions of refrigerators, you, you, right? You, you can't just uh, make a mistake on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a refrigerator or air conditioning unit or a pump or a jet engine. Uh, these are right. um, costly errors, right? So certainty or this idea of certainty or this mental model of certainty becomes very, very important. So my point is this is a, the idea of certainty pervades or can show up in patterns throughout your organization and throughout your practices throughout your habits, throughout your routines, throughout your pronouncements, throughout, throughout everything that you do is imbued with this sort of idea of minimizing risk. So as a kernel or atomic structure of, of culture, this idea of minimizing risk can show up in multiple ways. So, cult, so there's no one culture in an organization. Let's reframe that question to say, what are the dominant logics or the atomic particles that make up our reference system? And then we begin to see that there are many of them Mm-hmm. And there are many, uh, and, and you can recombine these bits and pieces of logic into different broader combinations to create different reference systems. And then you see that organizations are really made up of a lot of atomic particles, which are giving rise to logics and practices by which you run your business. It's a bit of a complicated answer, but I'm just trying to change the frame from culture as a monolithic black box that somehow characterizes your company to culture as a series of atomic particles that are used in different combinations to form these reference systems or these systems of logic by which we make sense of the world. And I say logic, not the formal logic, logic like rationalizations, idealizations, sense-making. It's really really Carl Weick's idea of sense-making applied in the culture sense. This is, um, it's reminding me of a CEO that I worked with a number of years ago on a large global firm, and he wanted one culture. He wanted to walk into any office of that company anywhere in the world and have it feel the same. He wanted, he would even use the phrase, I want the DNA to feel the same. Now, I think they probably got as far as making sure the furniture is the same. And in fact, I would argue I could walk into any building anywhere in any city in the world and tell you which one of those belonged to this particular company because so right. the way right. in which it was decorated and looked and all that kind of routine. So, okay, yes, I get that. But that's in the symbols in space. But if I, I think I would about- say furniture, furniture, I think does have, I mean, it does, physical layout has something to do with it, right? Because yeah. it will shape, it will pattern or delimit some of the choices that you can, you and I can make, right? Right. Um, type of desk that we sit at, whether we sit in cubicles or offices. I mean, this is that will shape mental process over over time for sure. But it's not enough to your it's point. It's not enough. It's not yeah. enough. And then I think about talking with the people who were running various offices, let's say in smaller countries in far flung places from headquarters, where the comment would always be, "Yeah, but it doesn't work that way here." We can't have that habit or practice because of the size of the market we're in, the legal practices in the market, the way we go to market here versus how you go to market in another country, you know, a whole host of factors that always struck me as legitimate business challenges. But what you're saying is they have to have it because they have a different set of practices. It is not going to have an identical feel in the culture. It's going to have some elements, but not the same. Is that we absolutely, my, my partner in crime at Antos, Lisa Koss, and I, because we work mostly with global firms, encounter this every single day. Uh, and, and moreover, we, it's often met with cynicism when corporate, in, usually in the U.S., is trying to impose a set of values or, or practices or norms onto the, 
the local manufacturing site in Sweden, which has been doing it that way for 50 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it not only is that way, it's, it's, it's often, there's often a backlash or an adaptation, a cynical kind of reaction right. to, to it. Um, that's not to say, though, that, again, taking the idea of the logic of practice, if you will, taking that a little bit further, that, you know, the CEO or, or the, the corporate headquarters couldn't try to impose more practice um, to try to change, essentially, that culture. But uh, as we both know, that's often um, contentious, uh, difficult, and moreover, takes time. Well, and sometimes misguided because you and won't often, kill the thing. <laughs> and often you won't kill the thing that you got in the process. All you right, kill, you kill the golden goose. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, and yet, and as you can also appreciate and knowing, and, and you know, because you you work in the same field. I mean, this is where a lot of your change leadership, change management thinking and skills have to come in, right? How do you actually? Because essentially, it is a change project. Uh, being very self-aware of, of what you're doing as a leadership team, having a tremendous amount of. Um, uh, uh, skill and ability in dealing with resistance, reframing resistance. I mean, all of these mm -hmm. skills, all of these OD skills become very important. Right, right. It's reminding me again, uh, David, how important it is when we say like we want an inclusive culture or we want to do better with gender or with racial equity yeah. or whatever the theme is of the moment, all of which are very important. I don't want, don't want to trivialize them. But in some ways, they still always come down to behaviors, actions. Behaviors is my word. Practices is your words. The things we do day in and day out with the, without necessarily thinking about them at times. So we're back mm -hmm. to the same place in this way. Yeah. I, I want to make one yes, minor distinction. It's not just semantics. For me, behavior is not exactly practice. It mm -hmm. practices uh, entail behavior for sure. Mm -hmm. But a practice is, is, you know, I think of it more like a habit or a routine because it's, it's not a one-off. Right. Yeah. Right. And a lot of, especially okay, in, the DNI, in the DNI world and the diversity world, uh, this is a great example that you brought up, actually. There are a lot of one-offs, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, if we just give a nod to inclusion and do an inclusive thing, well, therefore, we're right. inclusive. But from my perspective, how inclusive are your practices, Mm -hmm. Your the ways in which you are are you doing it habitually right. as a as a matter of course day in right. day out right that's okay, the key so difference yeah I will put in front of the word I use behavior habitual behavior every point forward I'm, because I'm, that's what I mean I'm not trying to be a difficult no it's important it's very important. <laughs> Okay, David, this is a perfect place to take a break. So my guest today is David White. The book that I am super excited about is called Disrupting Corporate Culture. And as you can understand from this conversation, culture is a complex thing to get your head around. Probably part of the reason that we haven't done such a great job. And I love this notion that it's the reference system. It's the thing that we carry around in our neurobiology, neurochemistry on how we do practices, behaviors, habits, routines, processes. The way you change that, at least according to David, is by you have sustained, meaningful experience. It's not about what the CEO says. It's about what's sustained and meaningful to other people. And it exists not just from the leaders, but in every interaction with every human being in every day. Fair summary, David? Beautifully said. Yeah. All right. Fabulous. <laughs> 
David is with Antos Global. If you want to know more from him, you can go to Antos, O-N-T-O-S, global.com and find more about the book. We'll be right back. And when we come back, I want to talk about some more on how. We're going to get to some tactics on what to do with that. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is David White. David is partner and co-founder of Antos Global. The book that we have been talking about is Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Culture Change and Its Impact on Leaders and Change Agents. The bottom line, culture exists throughout the organization as an operating system in a way in which we I want to say get things done. David is going to change me on that one. It is in the ways in which we have habits, habitual practices, routines, systems, processes, all of those things that we do without thinking about it. Kind of like you get on the elevator and you know here that I speak to somebody or I don't speak to somebody. Nobody ever told you. That's what we mean by culture. Okay. And we've been talking about the leader's role a little bit in that. And I want to dig into something you said, um, because you were talking about you look at the DNA elements, the components, the schemas, some people say, for you, it's dominant logic. A lot of this coming out of the cultural anthropological, cognitive anthropology work. But how do you go in and analyze a culture and describe it? What are the steps there? What does that look like? Yeah, um, great question. Uh, it really depends on what you're trying to do, but the way we do it is we, we start, we, first off, we, we're using all techniques from cognitive anthropology that have been developed over the last 30 years. There's a lot of literature behind them, a lot of, a lot mm-hmm. of science behind them. And of course, so paradoxically, um, one of the myths that we didn't talk about, but um, 
but is another myth worth mentioning is that culture is not synonymous with language. Mm-hmm. Culture is not language. In fact, the modern view is that language and culture are kind of parallel systems, parallel cognitive systems. They reference each other. They, they, they have, they touch each other. Sometimes they mirror each other. Sometimes they're compensations for each other, but um, culture is not language. And the, and the best way to say that is imagine, you know, we have many more thoughts than we have words. Mm-hmm. We're, we're putting words to thoughts, but we think we typically think is back to Lakoff. We think in images, we think often in pictures, um, and or you know we we know about smell and sound. I mean, there's there's way more um, input to our sensory system that we can put than we can put words to. So the reason I say that is because that said is we access one of the ways we study culture, of course, is through language. It's one of our access points, one of the portals that we go into a culture through language. Not only the, not the only portal, but it's, it's one of the, the major ones. So to your question, we, there are different ways and there's different schools of thought in the anthropology community. But one of the, one of the ways, the way I've been trained by, by my um, mentors and professors is really through analyzing speech patterns. Mm-hmm. So we have a particular technique that we use to pick out schemas or dominant logics in causal reasoning. So patterns of causal reasoning. So what that means practically is we interview people. We, tra- we record those interviews, we transcribe those interviews and we pick out causal reasoning or bits of logic in the things that people say. And what, and what these interviews are, I mean, the more conversational, kind of like what you and I are doing right now, the more conversational, the more everyday, the more interactive the, the, the interview, the more you can see the speech patterns and you can begin to see the causal reasoning in the habits or sorry, in the, in the, in the way that the person answers the question. So we interview CEOs or C-suite or top leaders and ask them questions about their business strategy or challenges they've overcome or how they're going to go about thinking about something in the future. And you begin to see over time, these patterns emerge. We then go take those patterns, turn them into uh dominant logic, um, uh, I, our ideas of what dominant, the dominant logics are, then usually we test them in a mm-hmm. survey mm-hmm. format with a wider population to validate. And then we begin to get a picture of how does the shared dominant logics of the leadership team overlay to the broader dominant logics of the company and we begin to, begin to build a, right. a, a picture. That's the beginning. Then we, then we can look at that and go, okay, so we have a sense of you know five or six or eight or 10 sort of dominant logics that are dominant in your company. Again, think of it as the atomic bits of your culture. Then let's go see where those things manifest in your habits and your routines, in your practices. You know, do, going back to my, my certainty example or my risk mitigation example from one of our industrial clients, you know, where, do those, where does that risk um, orientation or risk mitigation orientation show up? Well, you know, <laughs> look around, you can start looking, you know, and, particularly any industrial company, you'll see sort of risk mitigation practices in every walk of life, in the way you hire, in the way you promote, in the way you do benefits, in the way you do customer, or in, in the way you think about the customer, in the way you build products, in the way you plan. You know, you have 20 hours a week of meetings, you know, doing your business review meetings, you know, a bunch of pre-meetings, post-meetings. I mean, you're spending more time sort of monitoring the business than, than doing the business, right? So, this is not necessarily bad. It's just a, a dominant orientation to managing or mitigating risk, which is a pattern that's pervasive in your company. Okay. 
coming from a dominant logic of risk mitigation that shows up everywhere. I mean, and this is one example among among many. many. It's not just industrial. You could put that against my financial services clients and it would look some of the same. Yes, exactly. And yet there would be other dominant logics that would be sort of used in combination in in that reference system, which would make that financial different than the manufacturer of valves. Right. Right. Or HVAC. Right. So it's, it's, there's a lot of commonality. You might, you could argue, well, every company wants to manage risk, of course, but you know, the way Google manages risk or the way Microsoft manages risk is very different than the way Siemens manages risk. And the kinds of risks they manage and the kinds of trouble they've gotten in because they didn't manage some of those risks and, 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 and is going to exactly. alter the practices around the risk management. Okay. And that's, that gets us to the complexity and nuance. And the thing that I also like to say is managers intuitively know this. They, kind of, they intuitively know this. One of the things I, it's a little bit of a tangent, but re- kind of relates to your question. Culture is real. It's, it's a very real palpable thing. And one of the things that's exciting about the cognitive science is that it's validating a lot of the intuition that managers have about culture, mm-hmm. but have never been able to take that intuition and sort of scientifically uh, prove it or, or develop it because the methods and means by which we approach culture uh, from the business school community and from the consulting community are way inadequate as of yet, okay. given the, the intuition. The intuitions, as I like to say, the manage, managerial intuition is way out ahead of the of uh, business schools and consulting firms on, on culture. Way ahead. No comment there. I will get in deep <laughs> trouble if I make any comment about that one. All right. So let me ask you about a client that I'm working with at the moment. Um, like a lot of large clients, they've acquired a small business and the small business has its own dynamics and its own culture driven by some of the things it's trying to do, like, you know, be disruptive in its own way. But if I look at the larger company, I would say they have, I think they have a style that says we're going to be nice to each other, even if it means we're going to be exceptionally slow and we're going to leave a lot of stuff on the table that we might have wanted to do something about. Right. But there's a sense of nice dominating everything. Now, would that be a kind of thing that you would talk about as sort of a dominant logic? It's a very interesting question. Um, I think of nice as, so let me take a step back. Um, cultural reference systems, at least the way I think about them, are, are made up of different layers. Mm-hmm. And again, think of operating systems they are made up of layers too, starting with this, you know, right. you have the apps on the top, middleware in the beginning, in the middle, and then um, binary, you know, source code at the base at the bottom, yeah. that's, that's generating, right? So the, the source code of the reference system are these dominant logics. There's a middle layer of practices where the dominant logics okay. show up. And then there's a top layer of what I call adaptations, which are behaviors and attitudes and mindsets, which is where things like being nice or being collaborative or uh, being passive aggressive uh, show up. And that interesting thing about that outer layer, that outer band is that often it can be a reaction or a compensation for a dominant logic. Oh. So another saying that in sort of, again, another, another nuance and complexity, sometimes the way, and this is why employee engagement surveys never get a culture because an engagement survey might pick up in your client, the fact that the company's very nice, we're all very nice to each other, but that might be a reaction to something that's going on deeper in the, in the system, in the reference system. We're nice because we have to be, mm-hmm. uh, or we're nice because, so the example I use 
back to this company with the certainty logic, because we need to, because we want to manage risk in such a, because we are, our tolerance for risk is so low, um, we never get into arguments. Right. And we don't get into arguments. And because we don't ever want to get into arguments, we're very nice to each other in meetings, but we're right. also very passive aggressive. We, we say nice things to each other and agree politely and then go off and do something completely different. Right. Right. So very, very frustrating for the CEO of this particular company because it's, it's a very nice culture, but nobody can ever get anything done. Um, and it's a, it's a reaction to this dominant logic of risk. We don't want to take any risks so much so that we're never, I'm never going to do anything to possibly offend you or even disagree with you. That's lest you might think of me. I get how you get that. That's a nice analogy to say that the dominant logics are like the the HTML code, the source code Mm -hmm. that cause or enable, I should say, some middleware software that we can use. And that appears then as behaviors like nice. The middleware might be these practices, and then that causes us to react or interact with that, with that, that those practices, and then react in some particular way. Now, in your example, I, it's hard to say. It could be an, a direct expression of the dominant logic, um, but it could also be a reaction to, you know, right. a, a compensation for. And uh, another example, a startup here in the Bay Area that we work with. Um, you know, and this is very true of a lot of companies has a very strong value, stated value of teamwork. Mm-hmm. We're going to work as a team. But when you dig into the dominant logics, these interview processes that I described, and you observe some of their practices, it turns out that that company value, what they value most in their dominant logics is what they call craft. In fact, the word craft is all over. Well, it turns out what craft means, the, the schema behind craft is this idea of you're really good at what you do. Mm-hmm. And if you're not really good at what you do, I don't really want to spend any time with you. Right. Wanda. If you're, if right. you're not really on your game or top of your game, I'm going to dismiss you. So, of course, there's this espoused value and sort of overt kind of behavior of teamwork and collaboration because it's a compensation for the fact that nobody wants to work with anybody who doesn't really have their act together. Right. In terms of knowing their stuff, being really good right. at, their, at their domain, right. whatever it is. Right. Reminds me of another client mm-hmm. that I work with where they, too, value expertise, Mm-hmm. all the way to the top of the organization and no patience for people who can't get their hands in and get dirty and get things done. Right. But what that means is their general management, their general leadership suffers because expertise dominates everything. Well, right. that would be another example of a kind of a dominant logic. And obviously I'm not going to name any of these clients because right. that would be unfair, but I think I'm getting with you the drift. All right, yeah, so- en- engineering firms, very common, right? And that they get into trouble because they then have a bunch of engineers running the company and then change, right. pivoting to new businesses, adjacency strategy become complicated. Or perfection or whatever else that comes out of that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right. Fine. So we do all these interviews, or at least you do all these interviews. I don't. And you identify through all of that what the dominant logics are, what the source codes are that are driving the behaviors and the practices and the applications on top of all of that one. And you verify that and you look at the mismatches or the consistencies between the senior leadership and the other parts of the organization. And ostensibly now we identify a dominant logic that or a behavior in there that is not working for us anymore. Mm-hmm. What do we do now? Yeah. Uh, great question. Well, as, and as you know, in our field, um, part of that process of even surfacing the dominant logics 
is an intervention in, in and yeah. of itself. So, and uh, we do this in workshops with senior leadership teams. And that workshop itself is extremely interesting because once you've surfaced the dominant logic, you either have two reactions. You have, oh my God, you know, the OMG reaction, mm-hmm. or you have the tell me something I don't know right. reaction because dominant logics are so embedded in your system your reference system and your social system that you don't see them. You just, you take it, you take it for granted. It's how, oh yeah, it's how we do things. It's this, of course, of course. Right. Right. And then sometimes, you know, like we're paying all this money to these consultants to just tell us what we already know. Right. This is the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, so the, what do you do about it? Part has two, has a two part answer because uh, the first part is the, the surfacing, the act of surfacing, especially in a workshop setting with a leadership team, can be hugely uh, transformative for that group mm-hmm. if they're motivated and they see the pervasiveness of the dominant logic across their practices in the organization. They see it show up everywhere, you know, um, and they see it that that's uh, inhibiting their desired change. So pre- prerequisite to all this is, of course, the company has to be motivated to change um, reference okay. systems. You know, the, the cognitive science of culture explains why uh, change is so difficult, um, especially if the company is successful. We, we intuitively know that it's very hard to change a company that's, that's very successful and it's successful because it's, it's reference system is successfully adapted to its, right. its challenge. It's solved really hard problems. That's how reference systems come to be to begin with right. meaningful experiences having to do with solving really hard problems that are core to the firm's survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, those practices that are, have solidified around that experience, that meaningful experience, and it makes it incredibly difficult to change. We've always done it this way. Well, it worked. You know, we, we solved this big challenge. We invented the operating system. We invented the iPhone. You know, it worked, right? Right. Um, so why should we change? So there has to be a motivated reason to change. But assuming that there is... Once you surface the dominant logic with a, with a leadership team, you begin to see that that usually is the, is the, is the beginning of the cascade of transformation. Right. right. Or it can be, as, as you well know. Um, then it's a matter of uh, understanding, unless, a, unless an organization is in deep, deep crisis mode and mm-hmm. is, in, is in need of, you know, is, is in a deep turnaround mode, I would never advocate... Um, destabilizing a system by changing a bunch of core practices all at once mm-hmm. because it, it could be, you know, for example, a, a firm that's again, our right. client is very, very risk averse. You know, one of the dominant logics in that particular business is around financial performance. Right. It's like success equals financial performance, sort of predict, predictable quarterly returns for the, for the investor community. Mm-hmm. Um, so going after pract- going after their financial management practices or their financial reporting practices would be like ripping out the heart of the business, right? right. You have it is a dominant reason why the company is is having difficulty changing, but you have to approach it. You have to approach that surgery carefully. Carefully, yeah, right. As any so you wouldn't would, change right? everything, and there are a few of them that you wouldn't change because you'd completely disrupt the company's performance. Let's say in the both short term and long term. Okay, but you'd have you'd have a roadmap. Mm-hmm. You'd have mm-hmm. a roadmap, and you would be knowing that there'd be commitment to going after the that that financial logic at some point in some ways because you have to. You know that it's 
it's like the patient who continues to eat sugar despite the fact that they're diabetic. They know they have to cut out sugar. The question is, do you cut it out tomorrow or do we phase it out over time? So you right. know, it's a similar kind of analogy. But you, would, you do look for high leverage. We look for high leverage practices, what we call high leverage practices, where, mm-hmm. where um, when you start to change that practice, it'll have a widespread uh, impact on the organization. In other words, you'll, you'll be impacting the neurochemical processes of a number of people. That's sort of always my baseline analogy. Um, <laughs> you're going after the multi, you know, you're going after, you, you, know, you, don't, you don't do it in, in a, sometimes uh, culture change or big massive change in, in organizations is approached in such a way that they do it in, in a tiny part of the organization that's really marginalized from, from right. the business. Right. That always has the, the, uh, the unintended consequence of having the main, main, main line business saying, yeah, well, you did it over there. Who cares? They don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know. Or it won't work here. <laughs> or it won't work here. Yeah, exactly. So you do need to go after high leverage practices that will be meaningful and have impact, but not disruptive. And that's a, that's a, that's a careful calculus. We do it in, a, in, you know, we just do it in consultation. And usually right. it's, right. and always it's the leadership team that has to drive and right. come to this. We, you know, our, once we've done this initial diagnostic research, our job uh, at least the way we approach it is much more facilitated and right. sort of building the, the container, the holding environments so that the leadership team can do these things for themselves. I can see that, that they can see the consequences of their behavior. Okay. Yeah. All right, David, yeah. I could keep talking for, for hours about this yeah. one. A, I'm passionate about it. Clear you have some interesting knowledge that is insightful to me, but I'm going to close with my favorite question just for general fun which is, I like to ask people about times they've gotten out of their comfort zone and what was the secret to your success? And you have two minutes. Out of my comfort zone and secret to my success. Well, most of my, uh, most of my career has been, I, I think of it as mostly it's been failure. Uh, mostly trying to think I had all the answers and mostly trying to think that I had um, the secret sauce, the secret recipe for massive organizational change. I led a very large change project at Microsoft um, that, you know, has, has learned a lot and made impact in the company, but didn't achieve the, the desired results. And the big lesson for me in that was really comes back to sort of change leadership 101, just not really engaging my key stakeholders, especially the people who were skeptical about what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, engaging them in a um, in a in a not just only a productive way, but in a, in a, in a serious way. Right. Uh, in, in other words, what I've learned, and I've learned this especially from working very closely with my partner Lisa, um, that resistance is a form of integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, resistance is not you know you're stupid or you don't get it or you know you're out out of it or you're old school or you're living in the 1950s, you know, it's resistance is a form of integrity. And when you engage resistance in a, in a meaningful and serious way, it can be hugely transformative for both, both parties. So for me, failure, learning how to engage resistance has been very helpful. That is a whole other show in and of itself, because I think you're absolutely totally right about change. There's something people are resisting have to tell you that you need to hear whether you want to or not. For good reason. Yeah. David White is my guest today. The book that we have been talking about is Disrupting Corporate Culture. David is with the Antos Global Company, and you can find more about them at Antos Global, spelled O-N-T-O-S, dot com. David White, I think my highlight out of this one is recognizing, I just love this metaphor 
of the culture as the reference system, meaning the source code, the HTML coding of how things happen here that we don't even think about, we're not even aware of. It's And it comes from having solved really hard problems, had them be successful, and we developed some practices that come out of that. I think that's my simplified version, David. I'm It'll sure work. you. Yeah, I have missed piece elements and nuances in that. Thank you for being a guest. I would also see if you'd like to learn more about David's practice and your concrete example, join us on our brand new subscription membership service at www.outofthecomfortzone.com and tune in next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.